we have a single purpose here at NASCA, as we always say, and that is to address issues that are related to childhood, um, sexual abuse, trauma, and violent and physical abuse, emotional traumas, and neglect. And we do so with two goals. One, we do it by educating the public, especially as it's related to helping society get over its taboo of discussing childhood sexual abuse, and two, by offering hope and healing through numerous paths and providing services to adult survivors of child sexual abuse and information and more information and um, intervention and recovery information on NASCA.org. So um, <laughs> I'm messing it all up today. <laughs> but if you go to NASCA, N-A-A-S-C-A.org, like I said, you'll be able to get um, onto all of these interviews. And we are just very honored to have Michael Skinner with us this evening. Thank you so much <laughs> for being here. And I, you know what? I think a lot of NASCA, you know, and people that are on NASCA know you because you are so good at always posting and giving encouragement. And I just love that about it, about you. One of the things I love. <laughs> well, thank you. Um, <laughs> I hope I'm not being yeah. a pest. <laughs> no, not at all. Yeah, Penelope, I'm sorry. Yeah, so, so Bill wanted to actually read Michael's bio right now, if that's possible. Yeah. Go ahead. That'd be. I could. Yeah. Go ahead. Thank you very much. Uh, welcome, Michael, and thank you for joining us. I'm going to read the bio that's on the website, which is really full. <laughs> Tonight's special guest is Michael Skinner from New Hampshire, an award-winning advocate, educator, writer, and critically acclaimed singer, songwriter, guitarist, addressing the issues of trauma, abuse, and mental health concerns through public speaking, writing, and his music. He has spoken at the National Press Club, the United Nations, the State Department, and Georgetown University on the sexual exploitation of trafficking children and adults. He was part of the groundbreaking Oprah Winfrey shows that addressed the issues of male sexual abuse as children. Since 1993, Michael's uplifting and warm-hearted story uh, and songs of hope and healing has impacted thousands of people. His presentations at colleges, universities, mental health conferences, churches, civic groups, sexual assault, and, and domestic violence support centers, and conferences are highly acclaimed. He has appeared on YouTube, many TV, radio, and internet shows. Michael is a blogger on several websites and writer of articles for mental health publications. He's a consultant and a trainer for the federal government's Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration and the National Association of State Mental Health Programs, critical in helping this to shape the, the, the directives of trauma-informed care and services. He has, worked, he has worked to address the stigma of mental health and end the silence of child abuse in society and suicide, excuse me. Michael's the founder of the, and director of The Surviving Spirit, a monthly newsletter and website sharing resources to those to help those impacted by trauma, abuse, and mental health challenges. Now, before I disappear, I want Michael to know and all of you to know that there are several links inside the description, which can be found, that was on the current schedule, it's exactly what I read, 
uh, under today's date, the 6th of, of December, uh, November. But there are several links in there that will give you even more information about Michael and his work, including some of his music, the monthly newsletter, you know, all kinds of things. So I'll, I'll shut up now, Michael, but thank you very, very much. You can, we can take the show over if you'd like. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> no. Thank you. No. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, Bill. <laughs> Appreciate that. And, and again, thank you, Michael, for being on. And it's, I don't know if I've ever interviewed you, but I, I, like I said, I've seen you all over NASCA and I, um, just appreciate everything that you do on there and, and your music. I, I love to hear you, hear your songs that you're playing. I just listened to a couple of them before we got on tonight. So I could kind of <laughs> refresh my, my memory of some of them. And so I'm excited to hear which ones you've chosen to do tonight. But, you know, as, as you know, we, kind of ask you to start from the beginning and go in chronological order. Um, if that's something you want to do, if there's um, other, uh, you know, agenda, it's really your show. So we want you to be able to say whatever you want to say and um, and get things out. And then, of course, we might stop you here and there and ask questions. And, um, yeah, is that does that sound good? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. So as I'm chatting, you, you just raise your hand or whatever, and I'll stop because – um, I've joked before, I, I tend to keep to myself, but put me in front of a microphone, you can't shut me up. <laughs> so anyways, what started me on this journey? Because um, I've been at it for a long time in this, what I call the trauma, abuse, and mental health arena since 1993. Prior to that, I had a a life as a, uh, a husband, father, uh professional musician. I was also in the music business, a homeowner, owned a very successful business in the music world, and still continued playing on the weekends as a drummer in rock bands. I had made a living as a drummer in rock bands for many years touring. And then all the trauma of the past, the stuff that I kept stuffing down because I didn't want to deal with it, came back to haunt me basically at the age of 39. And in such a way that it it literally it, it devastated me. It was like I you know, I was knocked down. My knees were cut out from underneath me, and I just had nonstop flashbacks. There was dissociation. There was just a lot, and all my coping skills that I had been using through the years to not deal with this stuff. Basically, I was a workaholic, and just kept busy. It wasn't working, and I I, I crashed. I, I crashed and burned. Um, you know, and that was hard. It was devastating. I'd never felt like that. You know, it was, I went into a depression, became a major depression. And then, you know, the late, they're telling me you have PTSD, you have complex PTSD. There's so much trauma. And it was hard to see the light at the end of this tunnel. And keep in mind, you know, I, I've been in music all my life, but and a lot of people then will associate, well, you must have been doing drugs. No, I never did any drugs of what, whatsoever. But now I was put on a regimen of psychiatric drugs, and a lot of them were antipsychotics. I wasn't a psychotic. So long story short, I went to get help at the mental health center, and there were some caring, kind people, but they over-medicated me, and they treated me like I was an imbecile or a child. And that just made the healing process 
harder. And this made me angry and sad. Um, and I started attending child uh, sexual abuse support groups. Uh, I drive down to Boston. I started attending support groups for mental health, depression, just a lot of support groups. And I started doing advocacy, but I was in the background because I, I was, again, I, I was just trying to get my feet back from up underneath me again because I, I just felt so horrible. Um, I lost my business within a few years. You know, my partner, my wife of 21 years didn't want anything to do with me anymore. And that was the other sad part to, and the reason I'm giving this background is that there's a reason for this. This is what helped me to become an advocate. Childhood friends, uh, musician, musician friends, uh, people I had business associations with, I didn't expect them to save, you know, come in and save me and write checks and all, but I didn't want them to disconnect me now because I'm being told you're mentally ill. They treated me like I had, I was a leper, like I had the plague. And that just made the healing process that much harder. So my attending all these support groups and going to peer support agencies and hearing from fellow survivors of child abuse, sexual abuse, trauma, violence. And there was the one thing that was connecting all the dots. We all had significant trauma and abuse in our lives. Not everyone had to have a history of childhood sexual abuse, but there was abuse. There was neglect. And these were the things I was starting to see. Oh, it, regardless of the trauma you've experienced, it's going to have this, it's going to devastate you. It's going to knock you down. And if you don't get the support. So basically I got very angry. I started advocating, um, supporting first with a very small nonprofit here in New Hampshire. It was called the New Hampshire Incest Center. And they defined incest very broadly. Anyone with a set power over a child, they saw that it just didn't have to be within the family circle. And also mental health advocacy. And I just started speaking out. And, you know, I had taught myself to play the guitar during this depression. Because, as I said, I was a drummer all those years. I would start volunteering because I had a sound system, you know, to help people play a few songs. And then I started speaking out. Started writing some articles. And next thing, and I was just doing this as a volunteer. But again, I was angry at the way I was mistreated. But if it was just my story, I wouldn't be here today, folks. It was hearing the collective stories of all the others in these support groups who had gone through so many of the same things. They were marginalized. You're reaching out for help, and society is either slapping you down, pushing you away, and, you, and then they're saying, well, turn to your family. Well, if your family's pushing you away, how the heck are you going to heal? It just made it hard. Granted, the support groups, that that created family and bonding, and I'm still connected with so many of these folks today. I don't see them like I used to, but there's a special connection there in my heart with it. They, they helped me to heal, And but that said, there were folks who did stand by me, so that was important to make me feel like a valuable human being, so I just... I used to stand up to bullies in high school. I'd pick, you know, if they were picking on. Basically, I just saw this as people being bullied and picked upon. And how could I help change this? It wasn't just to be the Mike Skinner story. Oh, see what you've done to me? No, it was to be the collective story of how people are marginalized, we're dehumanized, we're blamed, shamed, and we're punished for dealing with the damn trauma that was inflicted upon us. We didn't do it. It's not... 
what's wrong with you. It's what's happened to us that that question wasn't being asked. Even now today, they know that question, but still a lot of people aren't looking at it. It's just still blame, shame, and punish, except for folks like you and others that are listening. Yeah. So that just, and what also was astounding to me is going to the mental health center or these other organizations that supposedly knew, they knew, they had no resources for us as the survivors, how to heal. It was just what they knew in the medical model. Well, there's all kinds of ways to heal. I didn't, they didn't have information on you folks or whatever. So I just started pulling all this information together and I just started sending out a little newsletter and I called it Survivor Friends and Friends of Survivors. And I just wanted to share resources. I wanted to share, obviously, Kim, it was later on I got to share your book, but in the beginning I was sharing authors, people's art, their crafts, whatever. I just wanted to show that we were valuable human beings and we mattered, darn it, treat us like human beings and would heal, the healing would go a, little, a lot quicker. And that, so I'm going to pause for a minute because I, I don't want to just keep rambling and, and cutting you folks off. But that was the grounding, what the the flooring what built me to do what I'm doing today. And I've just kept at it. So doing all these things, organizations, agencies started asking me to perform, to speak, to do keynotes. And they were paying me to do it, and which was like, oh, I don't want to talk about this stuff, but they want me to. So, so, so here I am today. It makes a little better when they're giving you money. You can yeah. kind of handle it once in a while. Oh well. Um, I was wondering as you were talking about your your family, did your wife specifically know before all of that came out? Had you already shared it with her at all, or was it new? Kim, I never said it to anybody. And no. so um, she knew about the physical abuse and the neglect, and, and she knew the violence that was in the home because both my parents were brutal. It was both parents in their circle of pedophile friends. So when I say I was trafficked, I didn't even know what that word was. I didn't think of myself as a traffic survivor, but people said, Michael, you were trafficked. It was my parents, you know, feeding me to others. So she knew the physical abuse so when the when the stuff hit she was first says am i losing my mind because i had already i had always known of these things they were little snapshots that would just pop up and i'd stuff them down so i i was just suppressing and repressing it kim but no i never said anything to her not till the actual breakdown happened did i say something to her mm -hmm. and then we used to go out on a once a week on a date, a date night, would go basically for coffee and go to a bookstore. And <laughs> I got, this was in October before I had the fall. I, I found this book, Toxic Parents, and I'm opening up and I'm there. Oh, <laughs> so that started me talking to her a little bit more about the abuse, but not the sexual abuse. That was a, Kim, I was blaming myself. I thought I was a pervert. I, I you know, I was, I still had the mindset of the child as a 39 and 40 year old man thinking this was my fault. So no, I never said anything to her until the flashbacks overwhelmed me. Then it was just, yeah. then, yeah. then I did say it. Oh, oh I'm sorry. I, I'm sorry that you had to go through all of that. And also then not even feel like, because it sounds like 
you were trying to make your marriage work. You know, it sounds like you guys were doing the right things. You were going out on dates and, you know, communicating, connecting. It was just that one thing that, of course, had to be terrible to tell. I mean, I, I can relate, I guess, in, in some of those ways is, is why I'm kind of just asking you these questions is because, but however, it's different because I did tell my husband when we first got together about it, but it is now that I'm in the middle of a divorce now that he's holding it against me. Now we don't have any young kids at home anymore, which I'm thankful for, but, um, but yeah, that it comes up. So I've just kind of related a lot to you and, and that song, you know, that you've created during all of that walk with me. Yes. And, and and that's the sad thing. What you just said, he's holding it against you. Um, That was, that was crushing to me. I, I love this woman. And then she, she in turn used that against me in divorce court. It's like, why? I, if you want a divorce, divorce me. Don't try to destroy me. And, uh, you know, that's with so many survivors. Um, and we all have stuff. I, I'm an imperfect human being, but geez, um, don't use the stuff that we went through as children against us. And, you know, we're trying to heal. We're trying, we're learning. And that, but that was also a part of becoming an advocate. Kim was to I wanted to share resources to help the families heal so even if there's going to be a, a divorce or separation whatever there has to be healing for them because they're in the midst of this too our children are in the midst of this these bombs being dropped you know this is you know I had you know teenagers and, and two young children this was devastating to them their dad who was so vibrant and active is now holed up in his bedroom, severely depressed. Of course, that's going to have an effect upon them. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm I'm just sorry that all of that that happened. It sounds like, or you know, just appears from what I see that you do have a pretty good relationship with one of your daughters. Anyway, now that you and you sing <laughs> with her on your your Facebook page, and that yeah, she's coaxed, she's coaxed me out of my semi retirement with music. <laughs> She's pushing me to do gigs again. I didn't. Yeah. I still do some gigs here and there and some presentations, but you know, I end up getting arthritis in the hands, and it's it's hard, it's painful. But she's been pushing me to do it, so I'm doing it. <laughs> and we're having fun, so she yeah. wants. Well, that's what's important. Yeah, that's what's important. Do you mind if I see if Penelope has any questions or Bill? Maybe they want to ask something. <laughs> Yeah. Hey, Penelope, did you have anything you want to? Well, uh, first and foremost, you know, Bill is, um, looks like he did call in on Zoom, but for some reason he can't access the audio portion. I don't know if you can turn that on for him or not. So sorry, Michael, not relevant to you, but I know he wants to contribute. Um, I'm here if anybody can hear me. Oh, there he is. I'm here. Okay. Okay, great. But I can't, I can't put the video on it's all i'm just an avatar in zoom oh, okay. well i just I sent you a message i think i said ask to start the video i don't know did you get a message yeah no okay <laughs> i don't know oh, a messenger message yes no that's not you uh, okay i understood that and i tried but it took, it took me into the room with the avatar and i can't figure out how to get the video but i did figure out how to turn the audio on i'm sorry michael for all the snafus <laughs> but it's really good to see you <laughs> it's good to hear you <laughs> <laughs> thank you 
But I can't get my I can't get my background working correctly, so I'm sorry I'm not gonna turn the video on and my picture won't even come up, but um at least I can I can hear everything and um you know, Michael, I just really want to reiterate what, what Kim has said and I you're helping so many people and I so appreciate all the resources that you send out as I, you know, have have communicated to you. I look forward to the Surviving Spirit newsletter. Um you know, every month that you send out, and I have personally benefited from it. Um, with respect to, um, you know, what you've shared, I we can all relate to that. We can all relate to carrying the the burdens of the trauma from childhood into our adulthood and having that moment where my turn was you hit a wall um, and you have to – your, atten- your attention is brought to it, and you have to deal with it. You have to address it. And um, I appreciate also bringing up the impact that it had on your children because, um, you know, Kim and I have spoken, and I know, you know, we've, we've spoken with Bill as well about this, but I can, you know, I wish healing was not so messy, and I wish, you know, we could heal and go through recovery, and our children would just come through it without being affected and um i find that i I appreciate you shared that because that's that's been very difficult um to have your children witness um all the different stages of recovery um and then to to manage those relationships um um, as we you know continue on our journeys so i i really you know appreciate what you shared and um please tell me it gets better (laughs) it it does. What's it just takes time. You know, Kim is saying she's seen the video of my daughter Michelle singing with me, but you know, there was separation on and off and they're trying to navigate what the heck happened to dad and then a divorce and it's just and then then there, you know I'm just speaking collectively for children, adult children, they're in survival mode and they don't know and think and I can only think of myself when younger and girlfriends would be saying, Michael, you should go get some help. Cause a lot of people knew about my physical abuse, especially if I was dating someone in high school or something that they could see bruises mm. and stuff. And I, and I don't want to talk, you know, and you need help because I, yeah, <laughs> I did need help. And I, right. I, I, I would have nasty words to say to them, which I, I can't go back and undo, but I can, I've become a better human being. Um, understanding that it was the trauma that impacted me that caused me to disconnect from others. We, you know, trauma that that's what I've learned. It it disconnects us from ourselves, but it pushes us away from others, and yeah. so we're just in self-protective mode. So it's so my being open. It's not easy. There's part of me that doesn't want to talk about, but I'm just saying, what the heck? Why not break the silence and because there's so many layers, you know, there's the silence about and the stigma, the denial of the children are being abused physically, emotionally, and sexually. God, you know, let's not talk about that. Well, there's all these other elements that's impacting the family, the siblings, you know. Um, yeah, it's it's huge. You know, you know, two of my brothers have, I've lost to suicide. And so mm. I, I talk about that. I'm not looking for pity 
it's just this is what happens, you know, if we don't address these things. So that's all I'm trying to do. And so with the newsletter and the other things, I'm just I'm trying to share hope and healing and help by the resources that I share. And again, I'm on the mindset what I learned when I was attending adult children of alcoholics. Take what you like and leave the rest. So, uh, again, I try to be inclusive and share a little of everything because um, what has helped me, some of it may help you, Kim, or Penelope or Bill, but there's things that are helping you that can help me or help others. So if we can share as much as we can on how to heal, I mean, we're going to have a better world. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I just – I I believe that it's doing the work and, and entering recovery and going through the process because we're interrupting patterns, we're interrupting cycles. I hope that due to the cyclical nature and the work that we're doing, as you mentioned, I'm, you know, it it just breaks my heart when you know we we have suicides or attempted suicides in family from the pain. You know, we hope that the work that we're doing will make an impact on our children and the generations afterwards. Someone like yourself and like Kim and like someone has to be the first one in a family system to start that work. And, you know, I, I'm hopeful and this is the, that uh, we may not see the results right away in our life, maybe not even in our lifetimes, but I'm hoping that the, the changing of the patterns will become more pronounced as the years go on. And, and the things that you're leaving in terms of the work that you're doing, the newsletter and all the things will, this is your, these are our, it's a legacy, if you will. You know, what do we want to leave for our children? We know what our, our abusers left us. And that's, you know, you've made that choice to to leave something different. So, um, and it sounds like you, you know, as you said, there's been a, an evol- your relationship with your daughter has evolved. So I, um, that's hopeful, and I, I, I appreciate you sharing that. You're welcome. I do see there is healing. There is hope because I, I, I refer to it as these pockets of light. Look at what you folks do every week. I mean, and there's folks all around doing this because I remember when I first started speaking out, I, not, I'm going to say there was only a handful. There was more than that, but it, there was very few male survivors speaking out. And now they're all over the place. And that is great. <laughs> you know, and younger people. And then we're sharing this stuff because I think of when I've performed those, I, I always perform whenever I, I do a presentation or a workshop, I always do a few songs and, and I'm talking, I've had, of course, I'm older now. I've had elderly people come up to me and they're, you know, they're shaking my hand, but they're shaking. I've never told anyone. And then they want to hug me or whatever. I've mm-hmm. had young people when I've spoken at a college or a university come up to me or a mental health center and say, thank you. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to start talking. I'm going to reach out for help because they have never said anything. So if we're reaching people at a younger age, even middle age, it doesn't, obviously it's, it's nice if we start it when we're younger, <laughs> save yourself all this misery. Right. <laughs> That's, you know, that, Myself and others have gone through. I I don't want to speak for anyone on the panel, but um, yeah, if we get to it sooner rather than later, it, it can save us a lot of grief. That's absolutely right. Uh, I was 46, so um, you know, just a, 
I'm now 53, so I wish it had been 26. But um, I got there. You got there. We got there. Right. We're here now. Yeah. Exactly. And I still have a few more years in me. <laughs> oh, yeah. Right. You do. We all do. Yeah. Well, thank you, Penelope. Did... <laughs> yes, thank you. Thank you for, for that. Um, well, I was wondering, Michael, because I, I don't think everybody that's listening has heard really your story from when you were a child. Would you mind just kind of going over that a little bit and telling us a little bit about what that was like? As a child, yeah. Um, just kind of going through your, your well, life. I live in New Hampshire, but I was was born in Boston, Massachusetts, and I can't remember living there because I was <laughs> a little guy. Um, but I do remember living in Cambridge, Massachusetts, which is right next door, right across the river. And I, I believe we moved there when I was four. And so I remember living there till the age of six. So I remember as a little kid, and we lived in the projects. I didn't know what the projects were until I got older. So um, but back then, that was most, it was a mostly working class people living there, and then single moms, um, some single dads, but that's where we lived. And then my parents bought a home in Billerica, Mass., which was basically 18 miles outside of the city. But this was like another whole world. I went from the, you know, literally, the, you know, the concrete jungle asphalt and chain link fence and all the rest of that to a small ranch. And the only other house on the street was across the street. And he was the fire chief diagonally across several hundred yards over was the police uh, lieutenant for the police force. So, but what was cool about this place, Bill Ricker, I think it had a population like 30,000, 36,000, but there was a working farm there. There was still a working dairy farm. I remember the milk being delivered there, but I had the forest right across from me and also up above me from our home. And so that's where I spent my childhood years so it was nature and music. So I was always listening to music. And that was one thing I can say about my parents. Um, he was a hard worker. They were both hard workers. She was a stay-at-home mom. There were five of us. I was the oldest. But they had a great music collection. They listened to everything from Nat King Cole to Elvis Presley, and then when the Beatles came out, just they listened to everything, you know, jazz. I, so I was hearing all this stuff, and I loved it. And what was, I couldn't understand, because they had records from Nat King Cole and others, but they were racist. And so I heard all the nasty words about other people of color and other people of different faiths and religions. They, they hated everybody, so, but they looked good. Um, but so the music, though, that was healing i had a little transistor radio i'd run across to the uh woods and i mean this was a forest and so i'd see the animals there was brooks there was ponds um if i really kept going through there was a b&m railroad yard at the far end of the forest and that's where they repaired the trains and all the rest of that so i would borrow some of their scrap wood and stuff to build my tree forts from them. I used to climb up on the trains and the guards were trying to chase me out and I'd be 
waving at him, teasing him, shaking my butt because you know I'm small and thin as a rail, and I I could run fast and they couldn't. <laughs> so uh, so there was this horror in the home, but I found a way to cope by going into the woods and listening to music. So even at night, and I can't tell you when I would do it, but I started to get like a sixth sense. I would sneak out of the house and I'd go out through the bulkhead and, you know, a bulkhead at midnight, opening that up, it sounds like the loudest noise in the world. But, you know, I'm just, they're going to find me. They're going to kill me. That, um, So I would sneak out. But then I had guilt because I'm leaving my siblings behind. So I had... I had fun. I don't want to say it was a happy childhood because if you see the pictures, I either look very sad or very angry. Um, so, but then at the age of nine, just before I turned 10, I saw the Beatles on the Ed Sullivan show and that was it. I just wanted to be a musician. I had my mind set on going into the military. And this is, again, I'm nine years old, but I had had this dream, this vision for years. I wanted to go into the military. I wanted to join the Rangers. First, I was going to go to West Point Academy, Academy, graduate as an officer, go into the Rangers, which is an elite unit, then go to the Green Beret. And the reason for all this, I wanted to learn everything I could about covert warfare, weapon, weaponry, everything. And I wanted to come back and protect children. And I was going to get rid of those who hurt children, starting with my parents. So these are the thoughts of a little boy. And then the Beatles came along. So, <laughs> and I, I, that, I was, that was it. That was a magical moment seeing them on the Ed Sullivan show. A month later, I turned 10 and I just started, you know, teaching myself. I, I was always tapping along, but all of a sudden I had this epiphany. I'm drumming along through all these songs and I could anticipate the drum rolls. I know what's coming next. And I'm like, I can be a drummer in a band. So, that's <laughs> by the age of 12, I was playing, you know, at parties with the, you know, the neighborhood rock band. We were playing at parties, junior high dances and teen centers were being paid and then just kept progressing from there. So by the time I'm 15 and 16, I'm playing in nightclubs and bars. So wow. um, music was a, a coping skill that was, I, I can't, it just took me away. It, it took me to places It helped me to meet friends that helped me to meet females, you know, because I, I still felt dirty inside, but I was a damn good drummer and I was in a good band. So people would come up and talk to you. So then you could flirt because I couldn't do this on my own because I felt so horrible inside, but I was getting validation as a musician, as a drummer, because I was, I was good at it because I practiced my butt off. And then the band just kept getting better and better and better. And that's, how I made a living. Then I had the good fortune to go over and tour in Great Britain for two years. And the reason I'm bringing this up was I was over there for two years touring with a hard rock band with my best friend, Chris, who I've known since I was 13 years old. He was also playing in the band. And we had hitched up with some other musicians who were a little older and they had been signed to a record contract years ago. But we were doing great in England, in Great Britain, we were doing a lot of the same gigs as ACDC back then. That was 1977 and 78. The reason I'm saying this is not just to say, oh, look what he did in music, but it was the first time in my life that I felt truly safe. 
they're going to kill us. I'm 21 years old. I've got this big ocean separating me from my parents. And by that time, I think, I think I could take care of myself. So I was in a lot of fights and all the rest of that, but I was still afraid of my parents. My father was a brutal man, but now I had this safety zone of being in England. And that's when the stuff really started percolating. And I look back at the songs that I was writing back then. I was writing about dissociation. I didn't even know what the word, I didn't even know the word back then. Um, Talking about, I had a song called Desperate. And so my friend Chris, who again, I've known since 13, he comes up and he goes, Michael, Mike, it wasn't Mike, he called me Mike. I knew all your girlfriends. None of them treated you this way. Who treated, who was that, who was so horrible to you? I could not tell him, Chris, this was my mother. I didn't tell him till decades later, Chris, that was about my mother. So I was, I was getting it out through my music and the lyrics and same with out of my mind. It was because it was. Uh, speaking of the dissociation, Am I Dreaming? That was another song. So these are rock and roll songs, rock songs that we're playing in venues that people are dancing to, they're shaking their head, and but I'm pounding out, and you know, I've got singers that could, you know, sing. I have a decent voice, but, you know, we work with singers that, you know, had great voices. So, um, so that was part of the healing. So that was like a, ooh, I'm away from them. And then the band came back, and then I looped right back into the same family dynamics. That's one of the things, the hold that our abusers have on us, it 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 goes through the ages. And until until I could recognize that, could I break that? And it really took many years for me to say no more. And, and now here I am, a successful person in music, in business, married, and I still would kowtow to them, not knowing that I'm resorting to that little boy. It's, it's not it's not me, the adult, standing up to them. It's the little scared little six or seven-year-old boy. And so that was part of healing, was learning to stand up to them and say no more. And then just cutting the tie, just saying, I'm done. I, you know. Did you... Um... So what what you knew also that your other siblings were being abused, right? It wasn't just you that was, that it was happening to. Um, do you still have relationships with them, or were you able to kind of heal that at all? Um, no. No. What was what was interesting for me was my younger siblings were the first to start disclosing and getting help, and I my birth mother would call me and say, Michael, they're saying horrible things about me in, at the hospital or to their therapist or whatever. And then they they went back. And one of my brothers, Danny, who was the last one to um, end his life, a few months before he did, he called, you know, he was always calling me when he was drinking. Um, and we were best of friends, but then we became, you know, he, he hated me for sharing. And that's what he said. Some things are better left unsaid. You shouldn't be talking about this stuff. And then I always remember this, him saying this, to, there was this pause and he says, you too, Mike, huh? You know, so he was acknowledging that, yes, 
it had been done to him. My brother David had ended his life a long time ago, back in the 80s. Um, and I remember visiting him at, because they, they both served in, in the military, and I remember visiting him at the VA hospital. He was in the psych unit, and I just said to him, David, you know, we were kids. Stop blaming yourself for this. This wasn't your fault. This, we were only kids. And he, and he paused, and he just looked at me. He said, Mike, there's some things you can't forgive yourself for. And I said, yes, you can. But then I learned afterwards, he had also been being abused by the the Boy Scout leader. So yeah. I, I just think he had trauma after trauma, and he just felt har- horrible inside because this was a person he looked up to and the guy just took advantage of him you know you you folks all know the drill but this is what happened so they were gone Mm -hmm. but my other two siblings um they come in and out of my life but if i start talking about the family they cut me off they don't want to hear it and they shut me out so it hurts but i've you know it does hurt yeah absolutely i mean it's almost like they don't they don't want to talk about it so they don't believe you or i mean that's how i would feel i would feel like you know why why don't you want to talk about this this we're adults now are your are your parents still alive she is he died from his from his drinking mm-hmm. um decades ago but she she's still hanging on but what was interesting kim was um again i'm trying to be respectful of their space because then uh but my sister saying well the problem with you mike you you need to learn to forgive and forget and move on and i mean no <laughs> they've never even asked for forgiveness you know and i i i'm one and everybody's different i don't believe i have to forgive them for what they did to me i have empathy for them now for what i've learned about trauma and learning about their childhood because i knew that they both had hard childhoods especially my father and then he was a korean war veteran and he saw serious combat so but they both had horrible child abuse lots of trauma so there's a part of me that's saying don i wish this is part of my platform is to raise awareness so that folks like them get can get the help so then they don't so they break the cycle because it would have been nice if someone had come along and helped them because we actually had a, a decent little, you know, there were five of us. We had a nice little home. I, um, but uh, he was a hard worker. They both could cook. It was the cleanest house. You know, even even after he'd have his rampage, the one thing about the Skinner household, it was all neat and tidy the next day. Of course, things started disappearing because he was breaking so many things. You know the police coming to the house a lot, though. So these are these are things that I grew up with. But so I don't forgive them. And people who do want to forgive, that's all the all the more power to you, especially if that's in your faith. And I honor and respect that. But I but I what I also ask is honor and respect how I feel. I have empathy for them, and I wish I wish their lives had turned out different because it would have all been different for all of us. So, yeah, absolutely. And they could have made that choice just like you've made. Right. To not right. do that, and right. I feel the same way, really, about my parents. I I started speaking out as well before my parents, 
or my dad anyway has passed away and um but I think that it, it was my time it, you know like Penelope was saying it was it was her time she was ready to do it I was ready to do it I was I was like 48 or something like that when I first came out too about it and um but everybody in the all the adults knew about it you know and that was the difference. That's what I have to tell my kids now because I do – my kids struggle now not knowing my story before. And I'm I'm struggling with them struggling. You know, it's it's a – it's really a, a really fine line that you walk with them because, like you said, it doesn't matter whether they're adult or not. But, um, but yeah, to know that their mom had gone through something that – they didn't even realize was going on because I just, I wanted their childhood to not have any, you know, even touch of child abuse or, you know, and, or, or especially sexual abuse. I think that sexual and physical, that was my main, you know, goal to stop. Um, there was still the emotional, you know, some of that and verbal stuff that went on, which I didn't recognize until later because I didn't do that work until later on. And, um, and so I know that I, I too, I, I'm not perfect. I know that I didn't do perfect things with my kids. I'm not a perfect mom, but, um, but it, it's hard because you, if you are really trying to change the trajectory of your, your family units and make things better, you're going to have people that are always going to come at you and say, you know, why are you doing this? You know, what are you getting out of this? Why, why do you have to do this? Or, or whatever but um yeah yeah can't you just get over it <laughs> yeah get over it yep get over that's, it. that's a good one get over it and um yeah so i'm i i can relate to a lot of a lot of what you're saying <laughs> unfortunately yeah. and i think a lot of us sit on on this on nasca that's right. why it started is so that we can all connect <laughs> together so right mm-hmm. given a platform for sharing hope and healing and help, you know, right? because I think that's one of the big things is when you realize you're not alone and something for me in learning about trauma, because it impacts us all differently. And obviously when they, now they start, you know, saying the complex, because there's so many different traumas we're dealing with and everybody's healing is different. And so if you've had, if you've had someone in your life that cared for you and loved you, that's going to make your healing a little bit easier than for those that didn't have anybody. So it's just being mindful of that. Cause that's something that it bothers me when, when society as a whole or even fellow survivors say, well, I'm doing this now and I'm doing that. Well, that's great. Well, I'm, I'm doing this now, but I'm going to, after I'm going to have to chill and cool I'm going to feel it tomorrow. This stuff is going to bubble up. And yes, I do public speaking and all the rest of it, but I'm not, I don't, there's a lot of things I can't do because the dissociation and all the different things, how it's impacted me. I have found a way to have a life, but I, there's certain things that I can't do. You know, there's other things I would like to do a lot more, but I'm still healing and I suspect it'll be that way till my last breath and I've learned to be okay with that and that's what also for other people to be okay with where you're at you know you don't have to be us for here or what someone else is doing because you know I 
I'll just use her as an example. I don't mean in this in a disparaging way. Oprah Winfrey is very, you know, she's up there and she talks about being abused. And she did have her abuse. But she also talks about having a loving family and a church family that was around her like a cocoon. For those of us that didn't have that, you're just that little child in the woods trying to make sense of right. how do I get through the next damn day? And then if you go into school and you're having the bullies beat the crap out of you till you can learn to stick up for yourself, to stand up for yourself so they don't touch you anymore, that's just adding more trauma upon trauma. So not to compare our... There's a commonality in certain things that we all deal with, but we're all a different place in healing and just just be mindful of that. Yeah, absolutely. I, I do admire, you know, not that I think they have a, a better edge, but I do think that younger people who are, are starting this healing are definitely not. Well, I had, how do I want to say this? I, I, I admire that they're starting it earlier. I don't think that, it's going to be less of a struggle because they're starting it earlier. I still feel like, you know, and I don't know, I could be wrong. There, there, and there may be some people that don't have issues once they've gotten into therapy, but I'm like you, I realize that I'm going to be in therapy probably for my whole life. And I think that that's a good way to think so that it doesn't, you know, affect me in a way that I'm thinking negatively about it because it's a positive thing that we're getting the help that we need. We weren't able to get that from our parents, like you said. So, um, you know, and I know Penelope's along. You know, I don't want to tell your story either, Penelope, but, you know, her and I weren't believed either when we started talking about our story. And um, and so we've struggled with that. But, yeah. Did you have anything, guys, that you wanted to say? I don't know if you can hear me or not. Can you? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I can't see myself anymore. You're in the avatar. So I was messing around with that. But yeah, um, well, I was in a sense, uh, in the sense that Michael was using it, lucky because I have I had terrible abuse, but I managed to tell my parents about it and they were not my abusers. At around age 27, and three years later, when I was 30, um, I started Alcoholics Anonymous because I was a huge drinker and drug user. That's where my recovery began, and I started to apply the the, uh, the steps, the material that Alcoholics Anonymous recommended to uh, both, you know, of course, my alcoholism and, of course, my drug addiction, but also to my... uh, history of trauma, you know, how I'd been treated as a child and, and the, tra- the trauma that I was feeling. And so that's 40 years ago now. Uh, and 25 years into it is when NASCO was launched. Uh, and it was launched just for the reason Michael said, you know, it's to, that you guys said, uh, give a platform to people who didn't have one back then. Uh, now there's lots of platforms. There's lots of places you can share. There's lots of people who will share back, which was not not so much when we started NASCA. They were, Michael's right. There were there were no males around, <laughs> but um, you know we slowly but surely improved on that. And Michael was one of the first people who helped us with that. His voice has been loud and clear, really since the, the virtual beginning. I guess I'm really glad that you're uh, doing this for us, Michael, and I'm. 
I'm glad to how you laid it out as has been done because I think there's a lot of people who are still really confused and we don't want that. We want them to be clear on, um, you know, the choices they have and so forth. So I'll, I'll be quiet and let Penelope go. Thank you, Bill. <laughs> well, thank you, Bill. You know, Michael, I was just thinking about, you know, everything that you shared with us and obviously I have the context of, of knowing you, um, outside of this um, broadcast tonight. And, you know, from the outside in, you know, when you hear the facts of someone's story um, and you you see the picture that is painted of the family of origin and all of the things that transpire and the trajectory for um, you and your siblings, um, it's it's always so easy to look from the outside and say, well, of course, you know, of course he broke the cycle. Of course he's done the work, you know, of course he's um, uh, headed towards, you know, mental wellness and stability and breaking a cycle and leaving a different legacy. Um, I think when you're in it, as you properly identify, and I think it's good for people who are going to hear this in the archive to know that it's, you know, we're all struggling with the same thing, even though we know when you look at it from a logical perspective and you can separate yourself, um, yes, it hurts. Thank you for saying that, that we um, sometimes, you know, you can't bring everybody in your family with you if they don't wish to, to go. Um, it's, it's exceptionally painful, but it doesn't mean that it isn't important work and it's not worthwhile work, which is what you said. Um, so, and I, I've also learned, and this is what you had articulated, um, at least in my own recovery, is that, you know, the best thing you can be, um, in addition to doing the work, is just an example and to keep giving invitations. I mean, your example of being honest, being forthright, um, finding a, a healthy, uh, obviously, a release, even as a younger adult in terms of music, um, you have exemplified, even though it's painful and even though it's hard, both to your family members and to the outside world, um, that you can um, create something beautiful um, and, and and find some contentment and enjoyment along the way. Um, and I think that that example um, is the best legacy that we just leaving that example is I think speaks volumes um and i just you know that's what what you you know share with us tonight um and um i have a child even though my you know i don't want to get into my own story who actually wants to become a music therapist um so i think somewhere along the way yes somewhere along the way you hope that you know as you um we you know do the work and you you uh try and break these patterns that somewhere it reverberates and there's some. Um, so I just wanted to, to show that with you because I remember you saying in a different, I don't know if it was in one of your newsletters or in one of your live broadcasts, I think it was, was it six or eight songs to change one's mental, um, um, like, a, a, like a, in terms of just releasing endorphins and something that, you know, taking the 
not that it would take the job of an antidepressant, but that it would have a profound impact like an antidepressant. And maybe I have the number of songs wrong, but I remember you talking about music and the effect it can have on mental health. It's like between five and ten. So the more music you listen to, I mean, now they have the studies. I mean, we know it intrinsically. Music makes us feel good. But now they have the research and the same with being in nature. So think of it. We've that's what I find amazing about us as human beings. We find a way to survive and then to learn to thrive because we're finding ways to heal. So for me, it was music then being in that forest. But now they have the studies of all, I always forget the words, what they label it, but the things that are coming down from the leaves, the trees, the, all the stuff that they're giving off are good for us. They're like endorphins. It's helping us to heal. And so this isn't, you know, ooh, ooh, this is real science showing this stuff. So there's a there's a reason that we do these things. And so there is, that's the key is like we're talking about. Yes, there's this, these dark places, but this hope. I'm. I was always a good, good guy, a good human being. But I'm a better human being. I have more empathy. I was the type A personality, just bum bum bum, the workaholic. I live a slower life now. I, I before I'd go visit friends. I'd be there for a cup of coffee, maybe a beer. Then it's time to go because I wasn't. I was disconnecting. Now I can have discussions with people. I can have discussions with the the checkout clerk, whether it's a male, a young male or an older female or a young female, if they're in a good mood, I'll chat with, I'll chat with the waitress. It wasn't that I was an ogre before. I just, I kept to myself. Now I have conversations with people. I, I literally do enjoy my cup of coffee. I'm not, you know, guzzling it down to get to the next thing. I'm taking time to be to have that joy that peace i've i've survived things but i've learned to thrive and i still have a lot of healing and different things to do but it's it's just much better than where it was before and even you know my adult daughters see that in me their friends see that again they always loved me and thought i was a good person a good father and all that but i'm just I'm kinder. I can take time because you you can be kinder when you're taking time with people. What you know, it was easy for me in the old days to just write a check for an organization that were helping out people. Now I can be just just by having a discussion, just looking at you and valuing you as a human being, saying I see you and I hear you. The things you see on the wall behind me, those are all things that survivors have given me through the years. I have more over here than my house, and then I have stuff I can't hang. It's so it's just things that people have given to me. You know, the painting, all you know, the wolf thing, uh, the music things, the, the the musical guys. That was a a young thirteen year old who heard me speak, and then you know, I get this gift. You know, and there's all kinds of things. You know, so you know, I have things over here, paintings. You know, just it's so we do touch people's hearts, and you know, you can't. You can't put a monetary value on that, you know. So that reminds me. So when I'm, so I surround myself with things to remind me that I'm a good human being. So I don't go to that dark space and think, oh, I'm that, you know, dirty little boy that, you know. So, yeah. right. Or the jerk in the family that, you know, actually said something about what happened, right? Yeah. Had the audacity to break the family code and to, you know, let out all the secrets um right. how dare you how, how dare, dare you? you 
But, you know, what you just said is that you, you know, with, with the dissociate, you know, dissociation um, and the survival, you numb the pain, but you numb the joy. And it really sounds like, you know, you can be present and, and enjoy those moments um, of with that cup of coffee and, and um, have a completely different experience. So I have a, I have a question. Have you noticed um, in your recovery that you also attract different different people um, into your life? I mean, you mentioned the people that have given you gifts and they've acknowledged your your contributions, but um, you know your your friendships and your the, the people that now come into your life. Have you noticed a difference in that? Yes, um, being more open, so I'm looking for more kinder caring people i don't i don't have room and time in my life to have, be around people that just want to disparage others you know i don't have mm-hmm. room i don't want to be around folks that hate that i i want to re- be around folks who care for everybody regardless of their belief system mm-hmm. their, their sexual identity whatever it is i'm just I want to be around caring people. I don't have to agree with them 100% because you're not going to agree with me on everything either. But people that care about others, that's yeah, that that that's important to me. So yeah, uh, I I do I do feel that cuz I've I have found a community nationwide cuz I've been all over and you know, I'm sad. I wish I could get in a jet and go visit people all the time, but I can't. But I've I've met people that there's strong bonds, there's connections. So whether it's maybe they reach out to me after the newsletter or like I do the this annual conference in New York. It's in the Catskills. And um, I'm there every year performing, speaking, and sometimes I do some workshops. But it's become like my tribe, you know, and it can be anywhere from 600 or 800 or more people attending this and i i meet people so it's like going to the class reunion that you want to go to right that same with other events and things that i go to it's just uh yeah it's i have found family and because i didn't have i had a family yes but it was we were so torn apart by the abuse my family and i can see it now was being in the band those were my brothers right that i connected with but it was also i was we'd be practicing or i got to meet their parents who they could be imperfect people but they loved their children they were not beating them down verbally emotionally physically sexually they were loving there was a loving home and so when i came in michael do you want want something to eat why don't you join us for supper just and just seeing how they spoke to their kids that was a big because i'm like wow my father doesn't ask me how my day was my mother less what i did but these parents are asking us to see a dad going out and playing catch with his son the other dad you know taking us fishing you know just i was like you know I'm like, well, I'm not doing that back then, but that's what I was learning from these people that, no, there's, there's, there are good people out there. So they were also my, my teachers, if you will. Exactly. That's that example. That, that is that example, right? That is 
something that is um to me that's the gift that's the gift um because you never know who's observing your example and that is true i i've had friends ask me that know my family very well i'm the only one that has been on the path of healing that has broken the silence and of course all the fallout with the family members that are it's the same it's very similar to yours and but i've asked them asked my friends how did you turn out the way that you did how did you take the different path and the thing is is that yes i observed the family next door that it was a very different kind of family a nurturing family and it was through those examples that i knew that there was a different way and there was a better way and that that's the way that i was going to be I was going to pursue. That was my goal. So I think, uh, thank you for for saying that because, and a lot of the stories that I've heard, you know, being on being on NASCA and doing the shows, it's, it's someone has had an impact um, on a on a on a survivor that has helped them to see what can be um, and given them that hope. So thank you for sharing that. You're welcome. Thank you, Penelope. No, it's been just an honor to have you on here. I don't know why we don't have you on more often. We should have you on more often. <laughs> but um, we, I do want people, though, to know how to get a hold of you and how to listen to your music. So if you could tell us a little bit about how to get a hold of you, how do you want people to contact you? The best way would be through my website, mskinnermusic.com. There's the surviving spirit because you'll see the newsletters. If you click on the newsletters, always at the end of the newsletter is my information. I, you know, the YouTube channel. I mean, that would, um, it's M Skinner music. Let me pull that up for you as I'm looking. <laughs> but if you Google. Michael Skinner, if you Google Michael Skinner on YouTube, look for mental health advocate or child abuse or whatever. I then I jump to the top because there are some other Michael Skinners. But my YouTube is um, it's YouTube slash C slash Michael Skinner music slash featured. So, yeah, Michael Skinner music. Look for me on YouTube. Um, MSkinnerMusic.com. Again, that'll take you. So I, I you can find me. But again, if you're getting other Michael Skinners that don't look like me, just put in mental health advocate or child abuse or whatever, then that bumps me up on the Google, the Googles. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Well, um, and it sounds like you keep busy still with other volunteer stuff, right? Are you still doing some of that other advocacy work? Well, I'm always doing advocacy. I'm I'm involved in a lot of things, but I also, I I get, paid consulting things, the, the, the stuff that I'm involved in. One thing that I was very excited and very honored and proud to be a part of it, you know, I was, you know, paid for it. It was myself and a fellow colleague, you know, another, you know, survivor who's turned their life around. But we were asked to create a workbook for those that are entering or already in the corrections facilities in Washington, D.C. And it's all about healing from trauma. So, that was huge. So that was, you know, that was us over the summer putting that together. And then it's, they've just did all the final editing on the rest. Of it. And it just looks, it's, it's really cool. So again, 
helping people. Those are paid, you know, gigs, if you will. I, I do other things, but I'm always doing something. You know, well, you see me on Facebook and other platforms. I, I write articles for stuff. I've, I don't go get paid for all the writing I do or all the stuff I share, but I share through other ways. It just sharing yeah. resources that I'm a resource junkie. If I can help people heal and just sharing stuff, that's what I try to do. Yeah, absolutely. No, I think that's, and that's one thing that I love about doing the darkness to light stewards of children stuff is that it's not, it's not about me and it's helping, you know, adults understand how to keep children safe. And so, um, I really like to go do that more than I do speaking my story. I probably should speak my story more, but um, but I'm like you. I I feel like it's just going to be and and it always has been. I've always been somebody that's volunteered. You know, I was at all of all of the schools and all of the churches that we were at with my kids, and because I wanted to keep them safe and I didn't know how to protect them. You know, I didn't have the skills or the ideas that that I'm able to now give to other adults. So, um, yeah, I think it's so admirable, just everything that you've done. We appreciate you and everything. So, yeah, everybody, if you have not heard of Michael Skinner, go on Facebook and look him up and or at his um, – on his website or, or you know, he's he's around. And, um, and if you are a part of NASCA, of course, you've probably seen him. So – we're just so thankful that you you were on with us tonight. Thank you, and thanks for all of you know being patient with all of our hiccups here. Well, thank you for ha- <laughs> thank you for having me. It's it's an honor because I I'm quite mindful that there's all kinds of wonderful people out there that you can also have on the show. So uh, you know it's it's an honor to me. So, yeah. Well, you know, let people know because we really I would like and Bill and I have been talking about this quite a bit. I really like to be able to do more of the Zoom. And, you know, if we do more, then we can maybe get them worked out so that we won't have so many bugs. So <laughs> everybody who's on here, you know, if you want to ever do a Zoom um, interview, we'd love to have you do that. So did you want to say anything, Bill? I just wanted to thank Michael again. Every time I speak on this show, it's been thank you, Michael. Thank you, Michael. <laughs> but it's true. He's a guy that's completely dedicated to uh, the work that he does. And, and there's so much. It's a really broad spectrum of types of um, platforms that he uses. And I'm just so grateful that he's part of the NASA. And, you know, he could come on as many times as he wants, pretty much how I feel. So, Michael, God bless you and thank you. Thank you. Thank you, folks. You know, Michael, I I just wanted to say I have every single um, Surviving Spirit newsletter that I've ever been sent saved. And I just wish to thank you so much. And for those of you listening, if you haven't subscribed, it's very easy to subscribe. Um, and uh, once you're on, you won't be dropped, which I really appreciate. So thank you. You're welcome. And if people want to unsubscribe, they just scroll to the bottom and say unsubscribe. I'm sad to see you go, but I get it. We all have different things that life gets busy. So, <laughs> yeah. But the newsletters are a treasure trove of resources. And mm-hmm. they're archived back. Well, maybe 12, 15 years, oh. um, maybe just 10 years, but on the website. So no matter which one you pick on, click on, 
there's a ton of stuff. And as I said, mm-hmm. take what you like and leave the rest. And again, I'm inclusive. I'm sharing a little bit about everything. And also to give hope that sharing, you know, because I've shared Kim's book. I, and whoever has books and they send it to me, I it gets in there. I, I put it in there because that's important, sharing what what folks are doing. Not just what the organiza- what the organizations and agencies are doing is important work, but I'm still at the grassroots level. I want to, you know, reach the person that's listening to this that, you know, you can do something. You can heal from this. And if you write a book, send me the information. If you do art, if you have an art exhibit or something, or a web- if you have a website, if you have a blog, I'll share it as long as it's not, you know, <laughs> putting other people down. <laughs> Right. <laughs> he gets to look it over first before he. I do. Yeah. <laughs> I am. I do the editing. Yes. <laughs> no, that's that's so so great. I think that um, we can all be blessed. I just want to say because I I just heard it and I really liked it. If you go onto Michael's you know Facebook page or or um, website, look up Walk with Me because I feel like that. I connected. I guess I just connected with that song so much. So if you yeah, get a chance, go listen to his song Walk With Me. Yeah. That's on the YouTube, and that was selected by Madden America as Song of the Week. And I was very excited because they do a lot of advocacy around the mental health and the mistreatment of people in the mental health system and how to make things better. So, yeah, to have that song, I was like, yay. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, you really have been an advocate. Mm. And we appreciate you. We love you. We love you at NASA. Thank you. And Thank you. Come on anytime. You know, Thank you. we've always got the the panels open on Blog Talk when we're there, so we'd love to have you even pop in sometimes and just say hi. Okay. Nice. <laughs> we don't have the music tonight, so um, we'll have to add that in, I guess, later. But thank you again, everyone, for being on with us this evening, and for Michael being here with us and. Hope, maybe we can have you back just to play your music. Maybe we can get that going, too, at some point and, and yeah, just let you come in. We'll do a dry run sometime. Just yeah, yeah. We'll, do that. <laughs> we'll get this all figured out. I just need to do it more often. So people need to, to want to do this so that I can practice more often. <laughs> well, have a great night, everybody. Thank you all for being on here. Right. Always good to have Bill on with us, too. Thanks for being here, Bill. Right, my pleasure. Yeah, folks. Thanks again. Take care.